0: Former Fox News anchor turned right-wing online content creator Tucker Carlson got quite the scoop last week, a rare interview with Vladimir Putin. When announcing this, he questioned why other Western journalists hadn't sat down with the Russian president since the invasion of Ukraine, to which many responded that they tried, but to no avail. Having fired a broadside at the so-called mainstream media, surely you'd hope he'd make sure to grill the Russian leader and show them how it's done. Well, it didn't quite go that way. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss the interview with me, what could be learned from it, and perhaps what Tucker Carlson should have asked Putin, is Ian Garner, a historian and analyst of Russian culture and war propaganda, and the author of Z-Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Welcome back to the bunker, Ian.
1: Thanks for having me on this very auspicious occasion.
0: <laughs> Ian, was this? Let's start off quite broadly was this by any stretch of the imagination the hard hitting interview Carlson suggested he was offering as you can hear by my tone i can't really even stay serious asking
1: that oh, i mean no surprise this is uh, this was far from hard hitting this was ev- every question was softball for putin and those those that looked a little more pointed a little more complicated i would strongly suspect were were scripted uh, it's it's a technique that Russian propagandists, Russian state television, often uses. From time to time, a tough question will be posed, but the answer is already prepared and the question will be shown up to be ridiculous by mere dint of having been asked.
0: Yeah, any of the tough questions to me seemed quite straightforward. For example, there was that talk around the, the American journalist, which Tucker Carlson asked about the release of, and it seemed to me like, that's somewhat a hard question, but also it's quite a binary answer, isn't it? At the same time, there's not tons of nuance to be, to be asked about there. So it seemed like even the pushback was quite, quite straightforward for Putin to be able to answer in a way that would be easy for him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a question that Putin has had before, and the answer in and of itself is not surprising. And that is, no, we're not letting this guy go unless the Americans give us something in return. There was a beautiful little um, paradoxical moment in it where Putin claimed, well, we observe law and order, and I can't just let this guy go, but also we're willing to do a deal. It didn't make sense, but it was easy to deal with.
0: On On a broad level then, how did the interview shape up? It appeared to me, for a large part, to be a kind of pointless and somewhat warped history lesson from Putin, basically.
1: I mean, if you've watched Putin's speeches and Putin's interviews, before, they do tend to be rather long and rambling. And in a sense, this whole affair did seem more like a Putin speech. Putin opened the interview with a 30-minute diatribe going back into the deepest, darkest recesses of the origins of the Russian state. And by my reckoning, it was about five minutes before Carlson said anything, and that was only to prompt Putin for more information and to say that he was a little lost.
0: Yeah, and pretty much it seemed like Putin's response was basically, do you want a serious chat? In which case he meant, if you want a serious chat, you have to let me be entirely in control. as the only way for it to be serious. Absolutely.
1: Everything everything unfolded on Putin's terms alone. And there were some really spicy moments where you saw Putin's character in that he he does tend to be very patronising. And you see this at the press conferences The hosts with Russian journalists a lot. He'll openly mock people for asking what he deems to be stupid questions. It's unusual for a for a man of the people dictator to go down that route, but it just reminds everybody consistently that, yeah, sure, Vlad's a friendly guy. He's our guy, but also he's in control. This is really his his business. And if you want to engage with him, you're going to have to do it on his terms and his terms alone.
0: He seemed to me to have quite a lot of disdain for Tucker Carlson. Was that anything unusual? Or as you say, was that just generally how he treats journalists? It just felt weird to me that he would pick Tucker Carlson in something that, as you say, you'd assume would be somewhat prepped and you'd expect to be favourable for him.
1: And there were a few lines where you just thought, seems like he hates this guy. I mean, it's pretty standard. It didn't surprise me. But if, again, if you're not used to watching Putin and you're only used to watching Western politicians speak, then it, it comes out of nowhere. You would never hear Rishi Sunak or Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron laying it into, into an interviewer in that way. Where you see it is on the far right in America and the far right in Britain and even in, even in Canada where I am you will see those politicians say, well, you know what? You're the media. You may be our media. You may be friendly, but the whole thing's just a pack of lies. I'm the only person you can trust and everybody else is stupid. And you know what? It works for Donald Trump, right? And, mm. it, and it works for Putin.
0: What were some of the weirdest moments then did you find within it? For example, I, I'm no expert on Russian history by any stretch of the imagination, but it seemed like Putin was framing himself as such, but perhaps... Russian history in a very narrow view based upon his, his own worldview was what it seemed like to me.
1: Yeah, I, when it comes to the history issue, things are really strange. And you have to step back from our Western understanding of what history is actually about. We do history to try and uncover facts, to try and uncover narratives of the past and reconstruct them from various different perspectives. That's what good history is about. It's about this sort of having multiple voices, multiple narratives, seeing where they intersect, seeing where they, where they diverge. And historians are constantly arguing. We're seeing this about you know the fate of the British Empire and the nature of colonialism today playing out in the West. Historians are hammering tongs at it with each other. But from the Russian mm. state's perspective, history is more like a religious allegory or a religious parable in which the facts are not up for question, but the facts are also not empirical facts. They are more indicative of the way that things should be and the way that things ideally are. So was he
0: almost mythologizing Russia's past in order to then push forward a, a kind of myth, myth for the future as well, in the, the myth of how he sees Russia's
1: trajectory? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is all about myth. Mm. And so we mythologize the past to the point that the past becomes this very kind of flat, linear experience where everything that happened over the, what, 1300 years or so that Putin was talking about inevitably seemed to be building up towards where we are today, which is Russia has this. Role to play as the savior of civilization. Russia is con- constantly surrounded by enemies willing to undermine it. And then talking about the future, which Putin didn't seem like he did a lot of during the interview, but when you actually pay close attention, he did, because he constantly came back to this idea that the multipolar world, as he likes to call it, is an inevitability. American decline is an inevitability. And therefore, victory in Ukraine for Russia is an inevitability. So there's no point fighting in Ukraine in these terms because Russia is preordained to win. Is it, is it strange as well, though, because he spoke about he was questioned
0: about his his Christianity by Tucker Carlson? And I find it quite strange for him to to be a Christian, but then also seem to have this almost they say that idea of feeling ordained it's about his his leadership. Does that show us quite a weird confluence about his own mindset. He appears to think he's almost godlike to me in some sort of way, but you know, he doesn't quite say that, but it almost feels like the narrative indicates towards that being his thinking.
1: There is an element of this, and I think it's less when you look deep into the Russian culture and the way that they discuss war and the past in particular, it's less that Putin is godlike and more that Putin is like the worshipper-in-chief. He's the most pious. He's the guy that brought Victory Day back in a big way. He's the guy that is always at the right memorials, always at the right monuments. He is the guy that is constantly bringing up, up this idea that the West is undermining, is changing, is forgetting history, and is somehow writing Russia out of history. and is willing to literally destroy Russia and therefore eliminate it from existence. Putin's the sort of the saint-in-chief, the prophet almost.
0: What's one of the large things we, we saw from Putin, really, just how much resentment he holds as well? Because this the historical aspect to me felt like there's there's huge resentment towards the West. But then when he spoke about more modern-day politicians and about Clinton and stuff like that, and his he questioned about being able to join NATO... It seemed to me that a lot of this motivation, it felt almost like just the, the fragile ego of an incredibly arrogant man pushing back at being a little bit excluded from the club of the rest of the world's leaders, which he felt like he deserved a place at.
1: So to understand this, I think we need to zip back in time to 1991 to understand that that, that is not just one man's ego, that is a national ego as well. Because after the fall of the Soviet Union, very rapidly we saw emerging a trend of Russian nationalists feeling like they'd been the losers out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The people in Eastern Europe, they got their movement towards NATO, towards the European Union. They won freedom. And Russia just lost. It lost its sense of purpose as the regional leader. It lost its sense of being this great empire. And they wanted it back. And so Putin, when he talks about being excluded, yes, he's he's bringing up the fact that many of those nationalists in the 1990s felt that NATO did what it wanted in the 1990s. They felt that America imposed financial terms on Russia in the 1990s that led to a great debt default and economic crisis, what was a sort of moral, social and economic collapse of the country. And Putin promised... And has been promising for 24 years that he's the guy to bring them back again, to give them that seat at the table, that no more will we be told what to do. And I, I don't buy that that's the case at all. And I actually think they got a pretty good deal. They could have come out of the 90s far worse than they were. They could have really dismantled. And NATO did try to engage them. But that's the feeling. That's the narrative. That is the sentiment that Putin is expressing and tapping into.
0: That sentiment sounds very much like it is towards a, a Russian audience. So that's another thing I, I don't quite understand about this interview.
1: Who was it for? I think we've actually got to break up this big interview into smaller parts and understand, Okay. That, and this is going to be no surprise, that nobody is sitting down to watch a two-hour interview. I watched no. it on double speed and I wish it could have been triple speed. <laughs> Putin knows that there's going to be a 30-second clip, a single sentence that is drawn out of that and goes viral is pushed to a particular audience. And so you saw some of the material was red meat tossed to Russian patriots, all the stuff about history and Russia being under attack. Some of the material tossed to moderate Russians. For example, the idea that the US is weakening, Western support is weakening. Basically, we can wait it out. If you think things aren't going very well, don't worry. And then some of the material did seem like it was aimed at Republicans, because Carlson got to ask his questions about you know, traditional families and all this sort of junk. Plus, of course, this sense that is utterly popular amongst the far right in America that NATO has no business getting involved anywhere. Great powers like America and Russia should just keep to their own backyards, their own spheres of influence. And freedom, death, and genocide, well, we don't, we don't care. That's let the Ukrainians fight it out on their own if, they, if they're bothered that much about it.
0: On those highlights, so breaking it down into those smaller parts, what really did stand out to you then? Was there anything that you felt was venturing onto new ground that we hadn't heard before?
1: There was nothing new in here. What was new was the event as a whole. And in a sense, regardless of what we said on a sentence-by-sentence level, the individual claims that Putin made, the fact that this interview happened, the fact that it has been all over Western media, all over the Russian media, that we are talking about it now on a podcast, that's a victory for Putin. Because he is normalising his narratives, he's spreading them, and the more they are spread, the harder it is to fact-check them, because fact-checking after the myth the lie has been spread it is very very hard to do and on the whole fairly ineffective and therefore that you know it's job job well done for Putin. when it comes to the timing of that then why do you think
0: why now is it in part because he's seeing for example international attention is somewhat going off of president zelensky and somewhat going away from ukraine due to the events in the middle east and is he seeing this an opportunity to boost his message to perhaps an, an equal footing to the messaging that we saw shared from Zelensky?
1: Absolutely, I, I think there are three reasons why now. The first, most obvious one, is that we've seen a spate of stories in the last few weeks that are weakening the Ukrainian war effort. Stories about rifts in the Ukrainian military leadership, about difficulties with mobilizing men from the front, we're seeing stories about American support drying up for Ukraine. This is a great time to just, this isn't going to be a turning point necessarily, but to just to add another thing into that mix of bad news stories for Ukraine. There's certain many on the Republican right are receiving this interview as, as Putin saying loud and clear that he can, they can do deals with him. I I think they're mad if they think that. It's, it's totally misguided, but that's that's the way it's working. And then we have the other two things, are two big elections coming up. In November, the American election. And of course, we all know that if Donald Trump wins that election, he will, as he stated again at the, the weekends after this interview went out. He's going to do his best to undermine NATO as a defensive organisation. So this is a great time to be hammering that narrative. And then the Russian presidential election, if you can call it that, which is taking place just over a month from now. We haven't seen much in terms of pre election editorials, opinion pieces, parades, rallies that we would normally see from Putin starting at around about this point. So this may be the first salvo in that. And, and the way that Putin likes to run these elections, which are more coronations, of course, is. To run them as as celebrations of his achievements. So it's less about making a choice between two candidates, more about affirming and reaffirming that Putin is the right guy to be in charge, plumping up some of his narratives and reaffirming the idea that, well, the war may not be going perfectly, but hold on, bear with me another six, 12 months. America's going to collapse. Donald Trump will be in charge. They'll stop sending military support to Ukraine. Don't worry that your brothers and sons are at the front because all is going to be well. Is there a weird bit of
0: kind of cognitive dissonance there in that there's such criticism of the west from Russia but then if Putin is going to be using this to to kickstart his electoral campaign is it not strange to be using western media to do that or is that because there's this inherent knowledge within Russia that russian media is controlled and people must be somewhat aware of that and then that western media is not so controlled so Therefore, it's a useful tool for that to be where he's putting this message across. I just find that quite a bizarre contradiction, if you understand me.
1: It it is a contradiction, but Russian political discourse is riven through with contradictions. I mean, the fact that they're running an election which isn't an election is contradictory and everybody knows it. I mean, the the Russian word for election is vibri, which literally means choices, which is the one thing that you don't have. Part of this... Is showing that a major American journalist, or at least that's the way that he's presented in the Russian propaganda, is engaging with Putin. Putin is respected in the world. Those namby-pamby, you know, transgender, awful anti-family values liberals in Western Europe and in the White House right now, they don't respect Putin because they're weak. They're feminists. But when Trump's back, when Carlson's leading the propaganda for Trump. Putin's going to be listened to. He's going to be at the top table. So just bear with us. Do you think this does indicate anything
0: particularly from what we heard as well for the for the future of Russia directly in terms of the conflict with Ukraine? But then beyond that, is is Putin putting a lot of his stock and hope in the the idea that Trump will win again?
1: Absolutely. This interview is just the tip of the iceberg. We know that there are massive influence operations foot, as there have been for years, that will be designed to skew the, skew the election in favour of the Republican Party, both the presidential election and the legislative elections that go along with them. Then
0: in terms of the the conflict with Ukraine, did anything from this interview give us any indication as to how Putin sees that beyond the fact that he sees it continuing for as long as he sees fit for it to continue at the moment?
1: There was there was nothing new, only the repetition of the idea that Putin is willing to negotiate. And yet he's made it very clear that he is not willing to seriously negotiate. What he means is that he's willing to accept Ukrainian capitulation. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History.
0: Our laughable
1: attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, let me offer a, a very strange thought experiment for the final question I want to ask you. Put yourself in Tucker Carlson's shoes. What really should he have asked in that interview that he didn't ask? And what were the key aspects that you think maybe should have been pressed upon, which were totally
1: ignored? I, firstly, I wouldn't have let Putin rant about Russian history for for half an hour to begin with, because he t- he told some obvious lies. And Carlson had either done no preparation or was willing to, unwilling to use any preparation that he had done to challenge those lies.
0: Well, there was that strange moment where it felt like Vladimir Putin had done more research on Tucker Carlson than Tucker Carlson had done on Vladimir Putin when Putin raised him having applied for the CIA. And you saw this shocking moment of revelation in Carlson's face where he just realised, I'm not massively safe here and they've obviously done tons of research on me, which must have been quite... Quite scary for him at that point,
1: I suppose. It, it's almost so hard to answer this question because everything that person yeah. said could and should have been challenged. The willingness to negotiate, he told the lie that there was a done deal, that there was stopped by Boris Johnson. Simply not true. We know it's not true. We've we've seen multiple sources confirm it's not true. What's the nature of the negotiation? What do you want to end the war? What does denazification really mean in practice? When Carson asked, which I actually thought was a good question about, well, how could you be a Christian and yet approve of killing people? Putin yeah. sort of garbled some mumbo jumbo about Dostoevsky and the Russian soul and should have said, well, hold on, we're not, you know, you, you're conducting this war in a way that is leaving thousands of people dead, the very people that you claim to be defending, the Russian speakers you claim to be defending. If you believe in the war, okay, but why conduct the war in this spectacularly destructive way? Is that another one
0: of the many contradictions that we spoke about? But he, he seems to constantly talk in mythology and philosophy about very real, very consequential things
1: which are, which are happening right now. Absolutely, and, and ultimately all of this, I would make the argument, and some people would challenge me, but I'd like to put the cast amongst the pigeons, I would say that Putin's talk around destruction is what clearly makes him so fascist. Because fascists destroy things in order to regenerate their own nation. And for me, the war in Ukraine is all about the destruction of Ukraine so that Russia can somehow regain a sense of spiritual energy. It sounds mad, but when you look at the speeches, when you look at the way they're talking about rebuilding and regenerating Mariupol, for example... That's the language they're using. It is mythological, it's mythical, it's spiritual. So why is Tucker not you know, drilling down into this? Because I can tell you, Steve Rosenberg of the BBC, who wanted an interview, he would have done. He interviewed the president of Belarus last year or a couple of years ago and absolutely had him on, dragged him over the hot coals. And Carlson was there to just listen, document, and allow Putin to go on to the next point that Putin wanted to make.
0: Well Ian thanks for joining me today to to pull up a few of those points and let's cross our fingers actually that maybe a a more a more consequential journalist gets the chance to to speak to Putin at some point in the not too distant future. Ian thanks for joining me in the bunker.
1: Cheers. Thanks for having me.
0: listeners if you enjoy the bunker remember you can support us on patreon for three pounds a month you'll get all of our episodes ad free and early just search bunker patreon podcast or follow the link in the show notes to find out how to sign up